Hello everyone and welcome back to the Skyrim audio adventure. Before we get into the second half of chapter 8, just a brief content warning, there will be some swearing and shouting and uh, general bad feelings coming off of this episode, so I just hope you aren't using this particular episode to relax or anything like that. Big thanks to all you listening, and without further ado, let's get back into chapter 8 of the Skyrim audio adventure, The Madness of the Hall. Part 2. I apologize for nothing. You started it. The hunter said stubbornly as he, Bracknell, Aethys, and Aella walked through the town towards the castle. After her fight with the hunter had wound down, Aella had insisted on coming with them to deliver Adrian's sword. As she put it, he and Bracknell would never make it past the front door without her. Aethys also tagged along for reasons only he knew. Aella huffed. Yeah, whatever. I had to shoot something. It was another quiet day at the Pelagia farm. Oh, is that where you were? Bracknell said, stroking his chin. I guess the giants didn't make an appearance? If you guys are looking for action, why don't you take care of this? The hunter pulled out the bounty notice from earlier. He handed Ale the paper, and she unfolded it as they entered the courtyard at the base of the steps to the castle. The hunter's eye was drawn momentarily to a towering statue of a man in a winged helmet, slaying a large serpent. However, it was only a moment. Then he was back listening to the group. Ayala's eyes scanned the paper for a moment, before she sighed. Yeah, we know about this. What is it? asked Athos. It's the Voltheim Tower's job. Right, we're waiting on that one. Waiting for what? They're waiting for the bounty to go up, panted Bracknell as he labored under the weight of the sword. Are you serious? asked the hunter, taken aback. But those bandits are attacking and harassing innocent travelers, aren't they? Wouldn't you want the help? The companions have the power to do it, don't they? Sure, we would love to, said Athos. But, I don't know if you've realized, your Vasca is a pretty full place. So if half of us are going to risk our necks to clear out a whole horde of bandits, we might as well make sure the hole is looked after. It's a lot of mouths to feed and 300 gold just won't cut it. Then, what will cut it? That's a good question. What number are we waiting for again? The Dark Elf asked the Huntress. Ayla took the first step up the long, stately stairway that wound up to the front of the castle. Uh, five hundred, she said. Ha! <laughs> You'll never get it. Why's that? Aethys cocked an eyebrow. Well, if I'm going to talk about it, I need you to take this damn sword, stranger. Sure, the hunter said, taking the blade off Bracknell's back and slinging it over his shoulder opposite his bow. <sighs> Listen, started Bracknell. Jarl Balgruf is stretched a bit thin right now. His guards are scattered all over the place trying to cover all fronts from hostile forces. He could fix this by choosing a side in the war, but that comes with its own problems. 
it invites attack and limits trade when Whiterun is the trade center for all of inland Skyrim? No. So, the Voldheim Towers. Whiterun Hold's easternmost lookout has been overrun with bandits. Does he draw a substantial number of guards away from the fields and the people of the Hold to launch an offensive to retake the towers? No. So, he puts a price on their heads and lets someone else solve the problem for him. However, it isn't a very high price. Why? Two reasons. First, because he's got the guards working so much that he needs all the wealth he has to keep them fed. No way that he can double that for the purposes of a raiding party. And second, what are those bandits doing? They are harassing and attacking any travelers who come from Eastmarch, the cradle of the Stormcloak Rebellion. That means they're harassing spies, scouts, warmongers, raiding parties, armies. Those bandits are doing the Jarl's job for him. They are Whiterun's first line of defense and they're not even getting paid a salary. He has no reason to raise the bounty. You want that job? You're doing it for 300 gold. The stairway was eerily quiet save the sounds of their boots on the steps, rushing water and Bracknell's labored breath after his long explanation. Ayla cleared her throat. I suppose we could have someone head out and scout it. Vilkas, Galdus, and uh, Ramasha, probably. The hunter took a second to look around and discovered that he was walking up a waterfall. They were nearing the head of the spring that Whiterun was built upon, and the water was rushing over the rocks and settling into pools all around him. It was clearly built to feel as though one was walking up rapids, and the effect was almost dizzying. He peered into one of the pools and wondered if during last seed, the water was warm enough to swim in. He spotted a ledge and wondered if he could make the jump down into the pool below. Probably not worth the risk, but damn, what a sight. Dark clouds high above lit from below by the bright setting sun to the west shining across the land from between mountains and sky. Long shadows offset by the scintillating water as it ran over granite. It'll be golden hours soon, Aethys remarked as he too took a moment to drink in the scenery. A pair of nobles in fine robes squeezed past the group heading down. They nodded to Aella as they went and shot skeptical glances to the two raggedy hunters. Do any of you know what Uthgird the Unbroken has against the companions? The hunter asked. Oh, you met Uthgird, did you? Aella sighed. Yeah, she was going to join us a while ago. What happened? She was strong as anything, but her technique needed some work. Kodlak knew that we would have to rein in that hot head of hers in order to train her properly. So, rather than giving her a test of strength, he gave her a test of restraint. Had her spar against this young whelp named Novar. We all thought she had promise. All she needed to do was hold back a bit and prove that she could be sparred with and trained. I take it that didn't happen? <sighs> I don't... I don't think she meant to do it, but... Less than a minute into the fight, she landed a high strike that practically crushed the kid's skull. He died instantly, and she was expelled. Never to return. The hunter swallowed thickly. He hadn't expected the tale to be so grim. So, no second chance? He asked slowly. What were we supposed to tell Novar's mother? That we let her son's killer in? 
that his death was somehow a successful test? The kid was too damn young. Every companion who lived to see that day carries it with them. Why shouldn't she? No, I understand. It's just... sad. For... everyone. Do right, stranger, grumbled Athos. On that sobering note, the group continued up the stairs in silence. When they at last reached the summit, twilight was upon them. The torches and braziers were all lit, illuminating a series of high archways, framing a small bridge across a pool that led to the front gates of Dragon's Reach Castle. The archways put the hunter in mind of walking through the ribcage of some gargantuan creature. Ahead of them, a pair of guards flanked the door while others patrolled the outer ring of the castle. One of the guards ahead of them stepped forward. He was wearing a helmet that covered his entire face except his eyes, which peered out, suspicious and beady. None of the guards down in the city wore such helmets, and it was clear why. The hunter was surprised the guard had noticed them at all from in there. Hail, companion, came the low voice muffled from behind the helm. What business brings you to Dragon's Reach? We seek an audience with the Jarl. We come bearing tribute. One moment, please, said the guard as the other opened a peephole and started talking to someone on the other side. The hole was then shut and the door stood resolute and solid while the group stood awkwardly before the guard, waiting for the message to make its way through the castle. So, began Ayala, who's under that helmet? Cassius? Colbert? It's Euster, ma'am. Euster, Ayla drawled, nodding. Of course, I should have known you by the... Sash, how's the wife? Still yet to exist, ma'am. Well, shit, I tried. A valiant effort, ma'am. Don't patronize me. Mercifully, the door opened and a woman with short auburn hair and some kind of light steel armor stuck her head out. The Arl is currently indisposed but the steward would be happy to meet with you. Please, come inside. The gates swung open, and something happened the hunter never in a thousand years would have suspected. He walked into the home of one of the nine Jarls of Skyrim. Castle's likeness to the body of some enormous beast carried through to the interior. The hunter felt consumed, engulfed by his surroundings. Raised braziers and bale fires burned bright, and the lanterns hung from crossbeams, and yet all of it did little to light the titanic heights of the cavernous hall. Pillars thick as trees stretched up into blackness, their true height only hinted at by the dim twilight peeking in through the high windows. He found himself flanked by more guards, standing at rigid attention, spears resting against shoulders, eyes watching pensively. Voices could be heard echoing through the hall ahead, and a white glow like starlight was reflecting dully off the wall to his right. The woman who let them in stepped over to the base of a wide staircase to the second level. He saw two more guards bearing swords and embossed shields waiting at the top of the stair. Between them was a pale, balding man in a thick woolen doublet, 
The Imperial adjusted his belt, smoothed out his thin mustache, and strode importantly down the stairs, head held high. Hello, companions. Welcome to Dragon's Reach. Honor to you, Preventus. Aela bowed and Aethys followed suit. We've come at the behest of your daughter. Adrian? The man quirked an eyebrow, and so did the hunter. At the slightest glance, he found countless differences between this man and the sun-tanned blacksmith by the city gates. What business does she have with the Jarl? Aela nodded to Bracknell, who in turn held his hands out to the hunter. Nodding, the hunter hoisted the sword off his shoulder. He heard the subtle friction of wood against leather, as the guards to his sides gripped their spears tighter. He ignored this and placed the sword in Bracknell's arms. The old hunter, still appearing starkly at odds with his surroundings, strode forward with the grace of a diplomat. Proventa Shavanici, he began. The Forge Master of War Maidens and your daughter, Adrian Avanici, has sent me bearing this, her master work, the Sword Blaze Garden, for the consideration of Jarl Balgruf, not only as an addition to his personal armory, but as qualification for the rank of Master Smith should the Jarl see fit to bestow that honor. At the close of his speech, Bracknell sank to one knee and held up the sword. Preventus Avenici stared at the grand black leather of the scabbard and the runes emblazoned onto it. His eyes narrowed, and for the briefest of moments, a look of what the hunter could only call disgust flashed across his face. But it was gone with the flicker of a flame, and that placid, practiced smile was back. Oh dear, he sighed. Poor girl, always so eager to prove herself. He motioned to the woman in armor who stepped forward and took the sword from Bracknell's presenting grasp. I'll go ahead and present this to the Jarl when he's in a... an... agreeable mood. The hunter felt those words stab like a needle into the base of his brain. The scene swam before him and he blinked in confusion. What was happening? The task was complete. The sword was delivered. What was the problem? Why was his head starting to hurt? Bracknell stood, bowed, and backed away from the steward, who nodded his head and looked back to Ayala. Will there be anything else? <clears throat> yes, Ayala cleared her throat. The companions may be scouting the Valtheim Towers soon. We'll be sure to let you know what we find. Excellent, and duly noted. Will that be all? Yes. Excuse me. The hunter piped up, pushing past Bracknell and stepping up to the mousy steward, who leaned back a bit at the sight of him. With respect, I don't think you'll need to worry about your Jarl's mood. His eyes were stinging from a mysterious passion. Your daughter has crafted an outstanding weapon. The steward took a step back, not a big one. It was a practiced, deft motion that, even when done in plain sight, was hard to detect. He looked the hunter up and down, and smiled with something close to blithe pity. I'm sure to the likes of you it would seem so. However, this is Dragon's Reach. If I may, that sword came before the eyes of Yorland Greymane, and did so favorably. It is a work worthy of a master. I do not know you. What do you do? I am a hunter of the hold. Then I don't see what you would know about it. Now, if that's all... Your daughter made that! The hunter was shouting, the ring of swords accompanying his voice. I am aware. And you don't give a rat's ass! Guards! Pox to you! 
The hunter was suddenly jabbing his finger into the man's face. Pox to you! In a lonely fucking grave! Several pairs of arms wrapped themselves firmly around his chest and started pulling him back towards the door. Thank you! We'll take our leave now! Ayala called from behind his ear. He saw the points of the spears in his periphery as Ayala and Aethys dragged him outside, across the bridge, and down the first flight of stairs. He didn't have time to get his feet back under him before they unceremoniously dropped him onto the stone. What in oblivion was that? Ayala shouted, sounding higher and shriller than he'd ever heard her. Do you have any idea how close you were to being skewered? It wasn't right, he shouted, trying to scramble to his feet. None of it was right. He's her father. Ayala grabbed him by the collar and looked as if she was ready to toss him into the water. Do I look like I care? Divine, save us! You owe me for pulling you out of there! You owe me! Yeah? What'll it be now? You want me to steal from the temple or some shit? Crack! The hunter's head spun and he landed back on the stone of the walkway, legs splayed in the air. She'd punched him. Not really punched him. He suspected that if she'd really punched him, he wouldn't have a head anymore. But by the mountain, he was floating. The stars were so close he felt he could touch them. Then, after a few seconds, when his eyes started pointing the same direction again, they grew clear and distant. Fuck this! I'm out of here! I need to blow off some goddamn steam! Ayala seethed as she stormed off. Aethys offered the hunter a hand, but he refused it. The dark elf shrugged and walked off after Ayala. When the hunter finally struggled back to his feet, he saw Bracknell's bearded face staring at him with big, worried eyes. Stranger, what's wrong with you? What do you mean? Why does it have to be about me? Why can't it be about what that rat piece of shit did? Where is this coming from? The hunter massaged his jaw. You were there. You saw him. I'm supposed to just listen to that? Now Ayala wants to take fucking swings at me. Do you realize what she did by saving you? She'll be forever associated with you and that outburst of yours. All she had to do was let you get stabbed and her reputation would be intact. Oh, is that supposed to make me feel bad? Maybe. I don't know, just think for a second. Fuck you! The hunter pushed past Bracknell and trudged down the stairs. Don't you fucking look at me! And where are you off to now? A drink! The hunter loved anger, its burning, crispifying clarity. If he was worn, ragged, and beaten, the sweet simplicity of anger could galvanize his bones and quiet his mind. This was not that. This was something else. Something dark and tangled, dripping slowly over his thoughts like a poison molasses. He felt fit to burst out in rage. He felt weak enough to collapse from fatigue. He was unbearably numb. And he hated himself for every one of those feelings. He felt the sudden irrational compulsion to draw his dagger and drive it into his own hand. If only to bring himself back to the material plane. The ale in his cup wasn't any help. Nor was the bannered mare. He'd been drinking alone for some time now. He hadn't seen Bracknell come in, and honestly wasn't looking for him. Holda was serving drinks at the bar. 
Sadia wasn't there, a Nord woman with silver hair and fierce eyes was making the rounds. Uthgird sat on her lonely throne in front of the bookshelf. That damn bard Mikael was sitting in front of the fire strumming his lute with bony fingers, chatting up two young ladies. One mousy, one plump and voluptuous. Now ladies, he heard the bard say, well I must admit your eyes sparkle like the moon or a river at noon, such as to have me swooning. Oh how they threaten to consume me, I must croon a tune, lest our time be up too soon. <laughs> the two girls sighed and fluttered their lashes as the bard stood up, dimming the noise of the rabble with a few basic chords. He then dove into an intensely stupid song. I was wondering where the way lays tripping over every wasteland on the road that I was taking to the sunniest of days. When I saw a sight so dreary and sad, I thought I might go mad and drop the task I walked with the ambitions I had. But what was this thing that could bring my trot to stop what sorry cat? A mud crab, I see him shaking his great clawed hands. I see him breaking all the waste and traffic with every tail and season. And I wonder why he ever chose the land. Oh, mud crab. <laughs> you know the ocean's where the fun's at You know we'd be a king to all the little creatures All the swimmers and the creepers How I wish that I could offer you a hand But you'd probably pinch it Ow! Okay, okay But you know <laughs> I'd take you to the Autumn bay where the days are long and the nights are sweet I'd carry you all along the way So you never had to hurt your feet You'd thank me as you frolicked in the waves Oh, cease your thrashing, just behave You're gonna love it, wait and see Such a good swimmer you will be I'm swimming <laughs> Oh, mud crab, I know the reason you are so mad You wasted all your life in ditches, pits, and marshes Oh, how could we be so heartless? What you needed was the beaches of white sand Oh, mud crab, oh, watch it! I hope you see me as a comrade Oh, if we're not getting anywhere Unless I can get you to quit with all the pinchy shit Now come along, the sea isn't so bad What are you doing back there? Ow! Oh, get him, get him! Stop it now! Please stop! Yeah. That's my bum! No! Oh, I need to ride horses and stuff! Oh no! The viewer lady, I would be far less averse to his treatment here. Ah. Oh! Mud crab, mud crab, mud crab! Oh, mud crab, mud crab, mud crab! Oh, mud crab! Oh, mud crab! As the song wrapped up, Mikael had taken to prancing around the tavern, surreptitiously offering his rear to any who wished to give it a pinch. Several women, even a few men, obliged. 
playing the part of the mud crab as the inn grew giddy with the silly display. It actually wasn't a bad performance. The hunter might have found it endearing had he been in the mood to be endeared too. As Mikael bowed and returned to his admirers, the hunter's sharp eyes picked up a short non-verbal exchange. Holda made a rolling motion with her hand, and Mikael nodded. Apparently his next song would be coming soon to capitalize on the excitement of the moment. Deciding now was as good a time as any to bring the night to an abrupt halt. The hunter stood on shaky legs. Several empty cups wobbled as he leaned against the table for support. He floated across the room, bumping lightly against a post as he did, until he came to stand in drunken silence before Mikael and his two wenches. The bard was quick to take notice of him, and stared expectantly into his bleary eyes. Enjoying the music? he asked. When the hunter didn't respond, he looked to the girls at his sides. The bard set down his lute and stood up to face the hunter. If it's a lady you're looking for, best look elsewhere. Once Mikhail gets them, they're got. One of the girls placed a hand over her chest in breathless enthrallment. The other, to her credit, smiled but rolled her eyes steadily. Oh, really? The hunter drawled. You're that wasteful wooer I've heard about in the marketplace. The bard furrowed his brow. I know what this is. He leaned forward and talked in a hush so the girls behind him couldn't hear. Carlotta put you up to this, didn't she? He shook his head, tutting. Oh, I'm sorry, but that fiery widow is mine. She just doesn't know it yet. The hunter licked his lips and grinned broadly. I'm so very glad to hear you say that. He threaded his fingers and cracked his knuckles. What are you going to do about it? Lay a hand on me and I'll have you clapped in irons before you know it. Oh, I'm not doing anything. The hunter began to raise his voice till it was audible in the din of the inn. I just wanted to congratulate you on making it into the companions. It must be such an honor for you. Mikael looked dumbfounded. What are you talking about? Are you even sane? What was the process like? Was it easy for you? I get it. You're just too deep in your cups. I just mean, so many brave and skilled warriors have come through and not made it, but you, they let you in. Mikhail's confusion was beginning to turn to distress. I told you, I don't know what you're- Crack! A steel-clad fist came flying out of nowhere and almost caved in the bard's pretty face. He fell backwards over the bench and landed just a few feet away from the fire pit and the tavern descended into chaos. Women screaming, men shouting, wooden chair legs scraping over the floor. In the middle of all of this, the hunter stood, cackling like a madman. He turned to the owner of the steel fist. Well, that was great. Thanks, Uthgur. Then everything went black. bush outside the inn. It was a good nap, he thought. Shame it couldn't have been longer. 
He groggily lifted his hand to his mouth and felt around. A minor miracle. He still had all his teeth. Counting his blessings, he sighed and lay still, marking the throbbing in his temple from where he'd hit the ground. I saw that. I know you're awake. Get up. The hunter blinked his eyes open slowly to see Bracknell sitting on the steps next to him in a relaxed, pale shirt. Did you see all that in there as well? Of course I saw it. Ah, uh, what do you think? I'd say I'm getting the hang of city living. The old man shook his head. I can't say I know what's gotten into you tonight. I can say that you're an idiot. But that's nothing I didn't already know about you. Uh, well, what are you doing sitting next to a sleeping idiot? The hunter asked as he sat up. Bracknell hoisted the hunter's bag, bow, and quiver over to him. I just wanted to bring your stuff out to you. The hunter looked at all his gear solemnly. I take it I lost my room? You've gotten the boot, yes. Right. The hunter grabbed his gear and stood up with a chipper hop. So, where are we going now? Bracknell's eyes were cool but sagging, a face accustomed to disappointment. We're not going anywhere. I'm staying here. You should head up to your Vasker. If you beg, they might just let you sleep on the floor. The hunter strapped on his gear and pursed his lips, mulling it over. Eventually, he shook his head. Nah, fuck that. I'm going for a walk outside the gates. I need the air. You might want to grab some water before you go. You sure did a number on yourself, and I wouldn't drink the city runoff. At least not for a couple miles downstream. And you're not going that far. How do you know where I'm going? Because even idiots aren't that stupid. The hunter didn't respond. He simply slung his bow over his shoulder, cocked his head at Bracknell with a tired, non-committal expression, and stepped off into the white-run night. He was not even a block away from the inn when a dark figure stepped out from between two houses on his right. In a flash, he drew the dagger from his belt. It slipped out of his unsure grip and clattered loudly onto the ground. As the ring of steel on stone echoed down the streets, the face of Carlotta Valentia came into focus before him. Her eyes were big with momentary fright, but soon they softened. The hunter was frozen to the spot, a mix of drunken shame and clumsy embarrassment. Hey, Carlotta said. Hey, sorry you startled me. I see. The hunter ducked to retrieve his dagger and stow it away. Carlotta folded her arms uncomfortably. I heard what happened in there. I take it you have an opinion? Carlotta looked around the air above her head as if looking for an answer. No, I don't think I do. I'm not going to say Mikael didn't deserve it, but I can't say you didn't either. Then what are you doing out here? Well, it's not to thank you. For all I know, this could make Mikael worse. <sighs> Fair point. It's just that judging from what I heard and how you smell... I'm guessing that little emergency fund of yours has evaporated. Reaching into a hip pouch, Carlotta produced three dull silver coins and held them out, offering them to the hunter. So here. The least I can do is replace it. He looked down at them, their smooth edges gleaming in the moonlight. His hand reached for hers, but he closed it and backed away. You're the mother, he said. Keep it. He turned away from her and continued down the road to the gates. Carlotta watched him leaving and stowed the coins away. Where are you going this late? She called after him. Out for a walk. 
I see. Stay safe then. Sure, the hunter said almost to himself. The walk to the gates was a good one. His boots felt lighter, more comfortable somehow. When the gates were open just enough for him to pass, the first thing he saw was a drooling gold stallion rushing towards him, hooves loudly thudding across the path. He flinched as the beast came skidding to a halt. Its rider, a weary guardsman with a young face, brought the horse around and addressed the guards in the parapets above the gate. All quiet at the western watchtower, he called. They're a bit low on rations and gloves, but they'll last till morning. I'm moving on to the north. The horse and rider took off back down the path, weaving through the ramparts and back into the night. The hunter steadied his heart and set out. Horses were a less common sight on the slopes and cliffs of the mountains. Heeding Bracknell's advice, he filched some water from a keg at the base of a tower as he made his way out of town. The sky was lightly dappled with clouds now. The air was drying. Definitely no rain. In fact, it would probably clear up as the night went on. A moon at three-quarter fullness was passing overhead, its pale light making short work of the clouds. Something was strange about this moon, though. It was small, or smaller than usual, at least. This was Secunda, the smaller of the two moons. Its larger counterpart, Maser, had to be up there, too. The two moons were always dancing around each other like lovers, comrades, or, depending on the legend, the broken corpse of the creator god. Maser would often eclipse Secunda, but for whatever reason, it was a dim, dark giant tonight. A black hole in a tapestry of stars. The hunter marveled at this for a moment. It had been a while since Secunda had stole the show from Maser. He hadn't read anything about the moons since he sleepily skimmed a phenomenally dull imperial treatise on the cultures of elsewhere. So he was unfamiliar with the exactitudes of the lunar cycles. The harvest moon came when it came, two or three blood moons a year, and sometimes Secunda would insufficiently eclipse Maser, and we'd get a flower moon, or as some called it, the egg moon, or the cream moon, thanks to its likeness to a boiled cream treat. Gosh, it had been a while since the hunter had had one of those. His gut rumbled as he passed the stables, and this meant a lot of rumbling because the white-run stables were massive. Easily a few hundred horses lived there, some being raised, some trained or broken. Others were simply in storage, waiting for guards or their owners to take them out. The thudding of hooves approached once more, and a guardsman rider blew by with message on tongue. It had been a different pair. The rider had been husky and mustachioed, the horse had been a dappled mare. He resolved to turn his mind away from the moons and to the logistics of the horse guard's nightly rounds. It seemed a more practical diversion after all. just about worked out how many riders were out at any given time during the nights when he came to a wall and stopped. He stared at it, wondering 
how long he'd been walking lost in his head that stone and mortar could sneak up on him with such deft stealth. As for the number of riders, no more than three were moving at any time, and there had to be a few that were just waiting at the watchtowers in case something serious happened. The Jarl must have demanded constant up-to-date reports. The hunter turned around and parked his rear atop of the uneven wall. Sighing as his stomach put up a dogged protest about his dietary choices that night, the hunter remembered the remaining jerky in his pack and started doing some rough, hunger-addled math. He briefly considered jamming a finger down his throat to purge some of the alcohol, but decided against puking on some farmer's crops. Seriously though, what was that? What was this gnarled beast who'd began chewing through his gut? Was it there before he'd sunk so deep in his cups, or was it just a drunkard's shame? Regardless, it was a type of shame. He slipped his fingers into his collar and tugged lightly at his furs, not wanting to open himself up to the bite of the Skyrim night, but still desperately needing to air himself out. The wind of the night was a sleepy mountain's breath. The wheat was a whispering crowd. The hair on his neck and chest stood up as night set into his bones. That most uncanny of all evening's machinations had come. The witching hour was upon him. Electricity flooded his veins, sleep passed from eventuality to abstract concept, and he looked up to the unlikely focal point of the sky, spread his arms out wide, and let out a howl. Into that howl, he put his regret, longing, fury, and frustration. He purged all that which could not be allowed to fester and sent it ringing across the fields. The sound echoed strangely off of what he did not know. Stone walls and wooden fences hardly had the makings of a cave. But alas, here it came, rolling back to him. It had not been a wolf's howl, but it sure sounded like one now. Then another and another. They were getting closer. Oh no, the hunter breathed. He jumped up on the wall and looked around, trying to figure out their direction. To the east, he saw shadows darting over a fence into a wheat field, briefly distinct from the darkness of night. Then the moon-kissed tips of the wheat began to part and whip in herald of the danger. The hunter dropped off the divide and snatched up his pack. They weren't between him and the gate. Running was a grim prospect, but at least it was still an option. He didn't even bother slinging his bow over his shoulder. He just held it in his hands and took off back the way he'd come. He hardly made it five steps before his way was blocked by a huge black shape. A single fierce eye gleamed at him out of the night. Massive paws clawed at the ground, and sharp bristles like spikes rose above it, setting its dreadful outline against the distant lights of Whiterun. Titus, the one-eyed wolf, stood before him once again. The hunter couldn't help but be surprised. This was a long way to come. Were they following him? He barely had time to be confused before the rest of the pack was on him. They came not just from the east, but from the south, emerging in the wake of their leader. He was surrounded by the wolf pack of Riverwood Valley. A low chorus of growls, pants, and snapping jaws built all around him as he spun trying to keep as many of them in front of him as he could. This proved futile, and he finally settled back on his familiar one-eyed foe. 
He took stock of the fact that he had not yet been shredded and sighed. Are you looking to settle this? He dropped his pack and drew his dagger. I suppose tonight's as good a night as any. But if we go, I guarantee we go together. Holding his bow out in front of him like a shield, he readied himself for the fight of his life. Titus sniffed and pawed the ground. He fixed the hunter with that cycloptic glare. A flash of red to his right and the hunter turned to halt the snapping advance of a younger, ruddy brown wolf, almost as large as Titus. The beast sprung at him. He sidestepped and whacked its jaw with the wing of his bow. The wolf changed direction and sprung back at him, teeth bared, aiming for his throat. The hunter readied his dagger to meet the wolf's heart, but suddenly the wolf wasn't there. A familiar black mass had barreled into it, knocking it aside. The younger wolf snapped up at Titus as the pack leader pinned him down. The black wolf latched onto the red wolf's ear and the underling relented, whimpering. As the hunter watched in astonishment, a rustling at his feet alerted him to the fact that two smaller wolves were dragging his backpack away. He moved to stop them, but it was too late. They had pulled out the rope like they were disemboweling prey. One of them had started to gnaw on the rope while the other tried to run away with it. The result was a skipping, growling tug of war. The hunter scooped up his bag in his arm, still holding the dagger out to any who may approach. And sure enough, when he turned around, Titus was standing there, as if waiting for him. This was all too uncanny. Sheer terror would have been preferable to this confusion. The fiercest wolf in all the forest sniffed at his bag with a slanted, curious eye. The hunter slowly and deliberately reached his hand into the backpack and pulled out a chunk of dried meat the size of two fists. Titus's yellow eye fixed on the morsel and stayed there as the hunter held it up to the side, then out towards the wolf. Titus sniffed for about the beat of a fly's wing, then teeth as long as the hunter's remaining fingers flashed in the night and the meat was gone. The wolf pack clamored to get a whiff of the meat, but Titus tossed his head, keeping it away. He gave a low growl and stamped his feet. The pack receded like waves at the shore of a lake and parted to let one wolf through the hairy throng. The hunter felt that this wolf had been hanging at the back, because he would have definitely taken notice had he seen it before. Of all the wolves, this one appeared weak and sickly. It had a pretty, gold-flecked gray coat with white legs, but it was thin and haggard, walking with the faintest limp. It laboriously made its way forward and sniffed the meat in Titus's maw. With distinct tenderness, the pack leader placed the meat down before the sickly wolf and sat over it as it settled down and began to eat. The hunter observed this with subdued anxiety. Many of the wolves, as he looked around now, had old blood on their lips. So, Titus, he began and the wolf turned his piercing eye back to him. You've already eaten, I take it? To his left now, that same ruddy wolf made a slinking approach and the hunter turned on him dagger ready. Which means you're just being a prick, doesn't it? All it took was a half-hearted snarl from Titus, and the wolf stopped its menacing advance, shook some dust out of its coat, and slunk off, glaring around. So, uh, what are you guys doing all the way over here? Was there a party with a pack by the slopes and things got out of hand? The big black wolf raised his one functional eyebrow at him. 
You know, that's a fair point, the hunter said. Why am I talking to a wolf? I'm sure it's not the first time I've talked to wolves, but it's certainly the first time I've been around to see myself do it. Oh, I've been feeling strange all night, but now I don't need to wonder. I know that madness has simply become me. That's just such a relief, wouldn't you agree? Titus blinked at him, then returned his attention to the ailing wolf, who slowly but surely was making its way through the chunk of jerky. What's, uh, what's wrong with this one, then? Uh, her. Brown rot? Bone break fever? The hunter sheathed his dagger but kept his hand at his belt. He looked around, the knight slowly feeling toothless once again. Seriously, what happened? Why are you over here? Is there something near the lake or Helgen or... A pale light of correlation sparked in the hunter's eye. Bleak Falls Mountain. Ragnall said there was something strange happening there. Is that why you're here? What about the other pack? Did they move too? He looked around at the group. Here in the open, he could actually get a good count. There were 16 in all. Practically a shaggy raiding party. How do you take care of all these? The hunter asked. A pair of yips sounded behind him, and he spun to see the two smaller wolves still playing with the rope, whipping their heads and thrashing it about like prey. Especially those two. Abruptly, the night was once again set on a knife's edge. A howl rose in the north, and seventeen heads turned in unison, ears at attention. This was a deep, rumbling howl like nothing the hunter had ever heard before. One of yours? he asked hopefully. No such luck. Titus was up and barking at his pack. Any that were down scrambled to their feet, and from all around him the pack rushed away to the south. The hunter moved to follow. Anything that could make an entire wolf pack flee was certainly worth running from. However, as he set off, the two wolves who had been playing with the ropes ran past him on either side, and the rope they still had between them swept his legs out from under him, and he fell hard on his hip. He cursed as two of his brand new knives fell out of the bag and onto the road. Perhaps karmically, the two wolves did not get far before they did the same thing to a fence post and got whipped around right into each other. Whining and yelping, they recovered and sped off after the others. The hunter crawled over to his knives and stuffed them back into his bag. He tried to stand, but pain shot up from his ankle where the rope had caught him. Doing his best to convince himself it was a superficial wound, he fought to his feet. A second, unearthly howl shook his bones. It was getting closer. And fast. His rope was in a loose tangle twenty yards away, and might as well have been in oblivion for all the time he had. Squeezing his bow and backpack to his chest, he hobbled over to the wall he'd been sitting on, and wasting no time, flung himself over it into the wheat field. Like with the log a week ago, he lay there, still as the dead, relying on the wall and the wheat to hide him from whatever was coming. The night was quiet, but for the chirping of crickets and the rustling of grass. He could hear his breath gently hissing through his nose. He heard his heartbeat thrumming through his neck. Directly overhead, Secunda shone bright in his eye. The field hadn't been fertilized in some time, but he hoped the earthy scent of loamy soil would be enough to hide his own. He knew it was unlikely, 
He heard the thumping of tiny feet approaching, and suddenly a pair of rabbits bounded over his head running south. He heard the wings of a nighthawk flutter past in the same direction. Then, the crickets ceased their song. Taking the hint, the hunter stopped breathing. If he had felt he could get away with pausing his heart, he would. Now there, in that silence, could he perchance but sink into the soil and be safe from all eyes, all thoughts, all deeds. Night, truly, a silent night. Rest could be found and given, even while there was no one to desire it. A faint crackle as roadstones moved underfoot. A massive foot, where but a step could sound like a shovel sinking into coal. Breath like the bellows of a forge seemed to pull at the tips of the wheat. It was sniffing at the ground, a rumble in its chest deep as the sky. A hand slowly slithered over the wall and rested there. A black, furred hand with long spider-like fingers ending in claws as long and wicked as a nightmare. It was big enough to wrap him fully around the torso. Like a sap slowly bleeding from a tree, those obsidian points snaked down to him. The sniffing continued, and he saw the hand grip. Though lightly it seemed, the mortar of the divide cracked in protest. Then came the head, red eyes, pointed ears, a wolf snout three times the length and breadth of Titus. Moist teeth the color of Masser peeked out as the lips rolled back in a terrible grin. He met those red eyes and was reminded not of fire, for fire had oranges and yellows to it as well. This was purer than flame and more sickly than a rose. It was hunger, and lust, and death. This was the end. But by all the trees in the forest, it would not be a quiet end. He drew his dagger and raised it, letting a last war cry roil up in his chest. The sound never escaped his lips. That double-sided dagger was now pressed against his face. He felt it sting and would have cried out had he been capable. That huge black hand was now wrapped around his face, holding his nose and mouth shut. As it had arrived, it had apparently caught his rising arm with it, and now blood from his own dagger was rapidly spilling into his right eye. His left eye was open wide enough he was sure his skull was showing. The creature's red orbs bore into it, doing as much to hold him in place as the hand pinning him. Drool dripped from those horrid teeth and onto his chest. Almost in response, it seemed, the monster closed its mouth. Over the creature's rumbling breath, the hunter heard movement out on the road. Then, a voice like a landslide. What is it? Did you catch something? The hunter watched, awestruck, as the monster's wicked maw began to articulate speech. Old kill. Keep hunting. He heard a rush of motion beyond the wall, then nothing. The black furred monster leaned down to him, and again it spoke. 
Looks, Looks like you owe me again. Then it was gone, disappearing back over the wall like a shadow chased away by a lantern. The night was quiet again. The wind continued to stroke the wheat. The crickets cautiously picked up their song, and an owl hooted somewhere nearby. Was he breathing? He could not be sure. He rolled to the side, letting the blood that had pooled in his eye socket spill out. He felt the soil claw at him, and so to be planted like a seed he lay still as the earth crept over him like creepers. He fell asleep. Thank you for listening to chapter 8 of the Skyrim audio adventure, The Madness of the Hall. This second part particularly took so long, for many reasons actually. A uh, few that were in my control, uh, like uh, getting a little bit wrapped up in Persona 5 Royal. Uh, I, I, that's on me. I, I, I'll eat that totally. That was, uh, that was on me. And uh, a few of them were outside of my control, like, you know, construction at my recording space and some just work and professional obligations elsewhere. But regardless, thank you so much for your patronage, your support, and your patience, because uh, I know that took a while. Uh, I hope that you have been enjoying the other things that I put out in the meantime. Ravens, which uh, my dad helped me with, and the My Favorite Photo video, which was a bit of a catharsis, if you will. And thank you again to Ariella Dallin for, for briefly reprising her role as Carlotta Valentia. We'll probably hear some more of her in future episodes. And if you or anyone you know are interested in lending your voice to this story, either as a character or as just some background audio, then reach out to me on Patreon and I'm sure we can get something done. Chapter 9 should be coming out comparatively quickly. And once again... Thanks for listening.